Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. What do you love about music? To begin with? Everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. In January 1972, Aretha Franklin recorded a set of gospel covers live in a church in Los Angeles, and it went on to become her best-selling album ever. I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. Today, Jim and I dissect one of the most important albums of the 1970s, Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace. Then we'll review a new album from outsider artist Willis Earl Beale. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. That is Skrillex, one of the prime DJs in the electronic dance music scene which has exploded in the last couple years, gone from this fringe underground movement into an arena-level attraction that is drawing hundreds of thousands of people to events and tens of millions of dollars to the people involved in it. Well, now big news out of that scene. Two of the prime architects of the West Coast electronic dance music scene are facing criminal charges. I'm talking about Pasquale Rotella of Insomniac Events and Reza Jarami of Go Ventures. They are promoters, very much equivalent to, say, what Bill Graham was to the West Coast rock scene in the 60s and 70s, promoting a lot of rock concerts in the infant stages of that scene. Now these two men, Rotella and Jarami, have done the same for electronic dance music since the 90s, building it from the ground up into a huge mega attraction. They've been indicted on bribery and embezzlement charges in connection with some of those events at the Los Angeles Coliseum. They have both pleaded not guilty on the charges, but suffice to say, they're probably going to be going away for at least a little while. They're not going to be directly involved with a lot of what's going on. And it's important to note what they have done. The Electric Daisy Carnival drew 230,000 people to Las Vegas last year, an event that one of them put on. The Together as One New Year's Eve concert in Los Angeles was a huge draw. Now they're out of the picture. What's that going to mean for electronic dance music? Five years ago, a lot of observers of this scene would have said this could have been a death blow to dance music. But now the scene is so healthy, they're saying, it's going to go on like nothing happened. Oh, absolutely, Greg. And, and it's being invited into venues where you wouldn't necessarily expect it. It is no longer underground. We look at what is able to fill arenas today in 2012. 
We talk about the heritage acts, you know, your Bruce Springsteen's, your Rolling Stones, your Madonna's. The alternative acts are, are down to a handful. You know, maybe Pearl Jam can still fill a giant stadium. Then there's this electronic music, and it's spreading from coast to coast, Greg, and in some major venues. In Chicago, you have the Spring Awakening Festival at Soldier Field, no less. New York has the Electric Zoo Festival, Nocturnal Wonderland in Central Texas, the Movement Electronic Music Festival in Detroit. These are big festivals attracting no longer tens of thousands, but hundreds of thousands of people in many cases, and they're doing good business. That's why these venues are inviting them in, despite the the elements of a drug culture with this music. Well-managed venues working with considerate groups that bring their own security can stay on top of something like that. Look at an artist like Bass Nectar. He is traveling with his own security team and his own sound system to give his fans the optimal experience, and he was rewarded by selling 250,000 tickets in the U.S. alone last year. listening to Sound Opinions, and that's a little bit of the traditional gospel tune, Climbing Higher Mountains, performed by Aretha Franklin. It's one of about a dozen gospel covers Franklin recorded live at a Baptist church in Watts, Los Angeles, in January 1972. The result of those recordings was a double album called Amazing Grace, which turns 40 this year. Aretha herself recently had a big birthday. She turned 70 last month. So today, we're giving Amazing Grace the classic album dissection treatment. Career-wise, Greg, Amazing Grace was an unusual move for Franklin. In 72, she was America's lady soul. And really, she belonged to the world. She dominated the pop charts with hits like Respect and Chain of Fools and Think. So when she seemed to turn her back on all of that in favor of the gospel music she grew up listening to and singing, people wondered, what's up? Franklin clearly knew what she was doing. Amazing Grace transformed gospel into what we still hear coming out of churches today. And its influence wasn't limited to the church. You know, rock and rollers from the Rolling Stones to U2 took great inspiration from that music. Aaron Cohen of Downbeat Magazine recently wrote a book on Amazing Grace for the 33 and a third music series. And he joins us now to help us dissect the record. Aaron, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you very much for having me here. So Aaron, the 33 and a third series asked critics to deconstruct a favorite album. Why'd you choose this one? Well, of course, I've always loved this album. I've always loved Aretha's voice, and I felt that this album is her at her artistic peak. Uh, her voice is at its strongest. Her range is at its strongest. It is incredible material. The album has a very important historic role in the way it transformed gospel. And it is Aretha Franklin's biggest selling album, too. That's surprising, even uh, above and beyond all the hits and the hit collections. Yes, it was certified double platinum in the early 1990s. None of her other albums have been certified double platinum, two million sales. Mm. We know her singles. We know Respect, Think, Chain of Fools. But as far as albums go, this is her biggest selling album, which is interesting because there were no hit singles from mm-hmm. the album. 
Yeah, you just said it's uh, your favorite album of hers, which is pretty bold stuff. What is it about this record that, for you, makes it definitive Aretha? She was able to do what she wanted on this album. She was not confined to having to do a two- or three-minute hit single, as wonderful as those singles are, as much as we love, respect, and think. If she wanted to sing for 12 minutes, she could sing for 12 minutes. If she wanted to perform contemporary pop material, she could, and she did. If she wanted to perform spirituals, the gospel songs she grew up with, she could, and she did. The range on this album is incredible. And she had her best band. She had the wonderful Cornell Dupree on guitar, Chuck Rainey on bass, Bernard Pretty Purdy on drums, Mm. and most importantly, she had the Reverend James Cleveland and his choir. Reverend James Cleveland was as important to gospel music as Aretha is to soul R&B. He transformed the way gospel sounds. He transformed it into a choir phenomenon. He could make a choir move with the agility of a great small group, like the great small group that Aretha brought to the church. There's also a great back and forth between her and the congregation that you can hear and feel throughout the album. It is a live recording. It was recorded in mid-January of 1972 at the New Temple Missionary Baptist Church in Watts, Los Angeles. Give us some context here. I mean, Aretha is the biggest female performer in R&B and pop, really, of that era, right? Yes. I cannot think of a bigger female singer on the planet at that time. She goes into a church in Watts. Four years after the riots. Yeah. And she shows up with her band, with the recording company, Atlantic, with Jerry Wexler. Arif Martin is in the truck. She had Sidney Pollack filming it. When you look at the film footage of the album, and I was able to see all this raw footage of this film, uh, Mick Jagger and Charlie Watts were there. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we know, uh, the Rolling Stones were putting the mixes on Exile on Main Street, which was a double album and also contained really clear gospel influences. Shine a light, yeah. Shine a light, and Billy Preston, who was a James Cleveland protege, Mm -hmm. was on Exile on Main Street. So I think that uh, influence on Amazing Grace on rock albums was certainly clear as well. Erin, she started out as a gospel singer. She was a child prodigy in a lot of ways, an incredible voice at a very young age. Her father was a famous preacher, minister, C.L. Franklin. So in the 50s, she's basically doing the gospel circuit. She's steeped in that music. In her late teens, she signs to Columbia Records, and she's discovered by none other than John Hammond, the guy who signed Billie Holiday and Bob Dylan, among others. And he wants to transform her into a serious jazz singer, right? Yes. There's a couple things to uh, keep in mind with her Columbia years. It was her father who really approved of her going pop. And her father, as you say, was such a powerful, powerful figure in the church that if he said it, it was cool with everybody, basically. Almost everybody. 
I went in the cleaners one day in Detroit. Aretha had appeared on a recent television show. And she told me, I saw your daughter Aretha last night. I said, yes. How did you like it? She said, it was all right. <laughs> said, but I'll be glad when she comes back to the church. I said, listen, baby, let me tell you something. <clears throat> <laughs> if you want to know the truth, she has never left the church. <clears throat> and when she signed to Columbia, John Hammond, of course, knew gospel as well. I mean, John Hammond was very much a part of helping Mahalia Jackson, of signing you know, the great gospel stars, the spirituals to swing concerts. So he was familiar with her as a gospel singer, and she also really loved jazz. She loved popular music. Don't forget that while Clara Ward and Mahalia Jackson were guests at her family home, so were people like Art Tatum, the great jazz pianist, Dinah Washington, the great jazz and blues singer. So she always had jazz in her as a pianist and as a singer. She also, when she would sing for Columbia, bring gospel inflections to her Columbia recordings. So the gospel ingredient stayed with her during her Columbia years. I'm so excited. My knees are shaking, yeah. Mr. Engineer, don't you keep me waiting. You hear me telling you, hurry. Aaron, do you see Aretha Franklin's return to gospel music on this classic album having an enduring influence? I mean, we hear uh, people kind of trying to bring in a little gospel <laughs> once in a while in the pop and rock and even hip-hop realms, but not having the, the deep connection to the roots. Well, I certainly do uh, see it having an influence, particularly in contemporary gospel music. One of the reasons why this album has been so influential on gospel is because of the format of a really great, really flexible choir with a star singer has become the norm in gospel music today. terms of her own influence on gospel singers, this Amazing Grace album is the one that they listen to of hers. I would like to point out that one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book was because I felt that this album's, even though it's a huge seller, hugely influential on gospel, in some ways it's been kind of underappreciated in the mainstream media. We all remember in 2008, Rolling Stone magazine put Aretha Franklin on the cover as the great singer of the rock era. I agree entirely. But in the article that accompanied that cover story, this album is not mentioned once. That's a great point. And I think gospel has been sort of ghettoized when it comes to the pop and rock spectrum. That's why I think it's so fascinating that this major pop performer, a person who was in the pop charts 
as often as she was uh, during that period made this hardcore gospel album. I mean, as you said, it ended up being her bestseller, but it clearly was not done for commercial reasons. No, it wasn't. However, I do not believe that Jerry Wexler of Atlantic Records would do anything that was uncommercial. There was a sort of trend towards gospel crossover success. We had Oh Happy Day, the hit single from the Hawkins Singers. Mm -hmm. We had even some rock songs, hippie rock songs that had become gospel-influenced. Put Uh, your hand in the hand of a man. (laughs) That's one. (laughs) Well, in 72, yeah, we're not that far removed from Jesus Christ Superstar and Godspell, the musical. Right. I might note, too, I'm working on a book about the Staple Singers who did have their biggest commercial successes during this period, early 70s, mid-70s with so-called message songs that did have sort of an underlying gospel uh, Christianity feel to them. Especially with R&B and black music at that time, there was a sense of that Gospel music is the real black music that R&B, jazz, rock and roll, all of which had African-American sources, had become diluted, whereas the ethnomusicologists felt that gospel music was not diluted. Well, and Aaron, is is Aretha posing on the cover in that incredible African dress and headdress? Is that part of it as well? I believe it is. And I think it was a real bold statement for Aretha Franklin to do that. When I was interviewing people from the book who were part of Aretha's inner circle, I talked to the poet Nikki Giovanni, who bought her clothes at the same shop as Aretha. And I sort of asked her, well, how do you feel that Aretha Franklin fit into the black aesthetic at that time? And Nikki Giovanni cut me off quickly and said, Aretha was the black aesthetic. Wow. Uh, Mm. That's a heavy statement. She even wrote an essay, I believe, when she was around 19, justifying her move over to pop music saying, you know, this is still part... I'm still part and parcel with the civil rights movement here. We're just bringing our message into a different forum. It's really incredible. Yes, when Aretha Franklin was very young, in 1961, she was 19, she wrote an article for the New York Amsterdam News, the African-American newspaper, where she says, point one, my crossing over from gospel music to pop is not disrespecting the Lord in any way. And then she puts it in the context of the burgeoning civil rights movement Mm -hmm. in a really interesting way at a really young age. So 10, 11 years later, when she records this album, it seemed like the world of that sort of thinking was catching up to what she was writing 10, 11 years earlier. continue looking back at Aretha Franklin's classic album Amazing Grace in just a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Later, Greg and I review the debut album by Willis Earl Beale and I'll add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And from time to time on the show, we love to do what we call a classic album dissection. Greg, we become professors of pop music, and we look deep at an album that has stood the test of time. Today, we are dissecting Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace, the 1972 double album that marked the Queen of Souls' return to the church after a decade in the pop wilderness. Downbeat editor and writer Aaron Cohen recently completed a book on Amazing Grace for the 33 and a third series, and he joins us for this dissection. Amazing Grace turns 40 this year, and Franklin just turned 70. She's been singing for over half a century. Over that time, she's often returned to first principles, to the traditional gospel tunes and style she grew up with. Nowhere is that more evident than on Amazing Grace, which she recorded live at a Baptist church in Los Angeles. Everything Aretha did during this period, she did in a big way, and a return to gospel was no exception. Aaron, talk a little bit about Aretha's mentors during this period. She had gospel luminaries like Clara Ward in the audience during the recording, right? That's really something. I mean, Clara Ward was a huge influence on Aretha Franklin. Clara Ward was also very close to Aretha's father, C.L. Franklin. Aretha was referring to the church, and she's singing Clara Ward's songs. Some of those were Clara Ward's songs. So that was really bold of her to do that. How I Got Over. How I Got Over being the, the big hit, yes. Of course, when Amazing Grace came out, it was a vinyl double LP. But the version that you say you got to own if you're going to own one was the recent Rhino reissue, which includes pretty much everything that was recorded that day, right? In- including the sermons? The sermons. When the Amazing Grace was released as a double LP in summer of 1972, they changed the song order. They changed the mixes. They added some things, took some things out. And I think it's a wonderful work of art. Arif Martin, the late Arif Martin, deserves a lot of credit for his arranging of all of that. But... I prefer the double CD for a couple of reasons, the one being there's more music. Mm. And I love gospel oratory, and there's the spoken word parts. And I also love the fact that the instrumentalists who I've mentioned, like Cornell Dupree, come out a lot stronger on the unmixed double CD version. Mm. Do the sermons add or detract from what's happening? I mean, putting I think, you in, in the pew, so as it were. I believe you know. they add. I believe mm. they add because, you know, it's part of the whole process. It's part of the back and forth with the congregation, with CL, with you hear James Cleveland talk about his instructions to the audience. And he has a wonderful speaking and singing voice as well. Now, as you know, this is a recording session. And if things should happen and we have to take it over, you understand how that is. So if you said amen on it first, And we have to take it over. When we get back to that spot, you say amen again, yeah? You mentioned that she, as a teen, was a fully formed singer in many ways. You know, uh, really deep, heavy stuff that she was performing with an adult perspective or or a gravity in her voice. You know, there's a fountain filled with blood. I've heard some of this stuff, and it's pretty heavy stuff. different about her now as a mature artist in her early 30s recording this album? What was different about the vocal style, the approach to these songs that she'd really lived with her entire life? Well, yes. I mean, those early songs are, are frightening when you listen to them today. When she was at Columbia Records and was going through a process of basically trying to be a jazz singer, and now I'm saying this as an editor at Downbeat, but I think that her post-teenage years singing jazz 
really helped her with phrasing. It helped her with sculpting sounds. It helped her with improvisation in terms of drawing things out and having her voice be able to carry for a longer term. I mean, when she was a, a young girl singing, she wouldn't sing for as long as she sings on these two nights. And I think the sense of control, the sense of discipline that comes with being a jazz singer really helped. Well, the title song alone, Amazing Grace, right, is, uh, what, about 11 minutes on this uh, Yes, and I'm sure it was even longer uh, (laughs) at the actual church. So, um, you know, it really takes a real heavy training to be able to carry that out. Now, you mentioned also this tradition that she was coming out of. There were two hugely fertile periods for gospel music. People maybe not realize how commercial gospel music had become in the late 40s, early 50s. I mean, people were having nationwide hits with this. Oh, absolutely. One of the groups was here in Chicago, the Gay Sisters, Mm -hmm. and they had a huge hit, God Will Take Care of You, on Savoy, which was a huge gospel hit. It would not have crossed over to a mainstream audience. And, of course, uh, the gay family didn't receive the money from Savoy that they should have. So that really was... A golden era for the music. It was a golden era in terms of sales, in terms of uh, profiting the singers themselves, not so much. And Mm -hmm. that's, I think, also something that Aretha learned from being on the gospel circuit was that commercial dimension. I think one of the points you make on the book that's really intriguing to me is that people like Reverend James Cleveland, who she worked with on this, took that small group sound and sort of applied it to these massive choirs. Explain that a little bit. Well, Reverend James Cleveland, who's from here in Chicago, grew up working with the gospel small group singers, the quartets. It was the sort of close harmonies, small group harmonies that, you know, we all know in its R&B form. But in terms of choirs, I mean, choirs couldn't move like that. I mean, of course, you know, choirs, church choirs have been around forever. But to hear them move with the ease of those quartets that someone like James Cleveland came out of was not done until Cleveland was able to do it. So obviously Aretha was responding to that, saying, this is cool, I want some of that in my gospel record. Well, James Cleveland was a childhood friend of her. I mean, James Cleveland was older than her, Mm. but he spent part of his growing up years in the Franklin household. He uh, gave Aretha Franklin some training on piano. So she knew him for a long time. And she, I'm sure, knew that in front of that sort of choir with her voice in front, that could make a big, big impact.
they have a duet, Aretha and James Cleveland, on Precious Memories. Yes. He's, he's an interesting vocalist, to say the least. He's not a conventional type singer, kind of rough and gruff, but there's something there. What did Cleveland bring to Franklin, her art, her singing, her approach on this record that maybe distinguish it? I mean, I think when you hear Precious Memories, you hear that contrast between the two voices. You know, when you have Aretha herself soaring at her peak is one thing. And then to hear her soaring, trading off with another strong voice that is so different than hers. We get a little Uh, James Cleveland has compared his own voice to that of, of Louis Armstrong. Personally, I feel it sounds more like Bernie Mac in a good way, um, in a good way. Um, but uh, so, yeah, you hear that. And also, James Cleveland was able to improvise, too. And that's another thing. As much as Aretha Franklin improvised her way from her gospel training through her jazz training, you had James Cleveland, who was able to improvise as a singer, too. So, again, to bring back my uh, downbeat uh, background to say when you have two improvisers working together that's a beautiful sound Where did she go from here, Aaron? After Amazing Grace comes out, she makes this big return to the church, and it is a successful, uh, best-selling album in, in her catalog, as you said it was. Where did she go next? Well, it's interesting. After that, she recorded with Quincy Jones, Hey Now Hey, The Other Side of the Sky. So she sort of broke away from the Jerry Wexler group mm-hmm. and recorded this. Then she went back, recorded such hits as Until You Come Back to Me, That's What I'm mm-hmm. Going to Do. And so she basically went back to being a soul star again and didn't really say that much in interviews about the album but it really was very meaningful for her too because she would still perform songs from it and then in the 1980s she recorded another gospel album one faith one lord one baptism which i don't believe was a successful an album Mm. but she certainly uh went back on her path but but for all intents and purposes amazing grace stands as a singular peak it certainly in this, does. In this incredible career. Yeah. I, like I say, I don't believe she recorded anything nearly as great afterwards or anything as great before. Aaron Cohen, author of Amazing Grace, a terrific look at what he calls Aretha Franklin's best album. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Greg, we usually like to wrap up these classic album dissections by each picking a song from the disc that we think stands the test of time, really highlights what's wonderful about this album. I'm going to go with the track Take My Hand, Precious Lord, which Aretha Franklin does as a medley with You've Got a Friend. Now, that first half of the track, they kind of weave together throughout, was based on a hymn from the mid-1800s called Maitland that Thomas Dorsey, the famous gospel pioneer, really popularized. It was Dr. Martin Luther King's favorite tune, and Mahalia Jackson sang it at his funeral. The opera singer, Leontine Price, sang it at the state funeral of Lyndon Johnson, the president, and Aretha Franklin sang it at Jackson's funeral. You know, it is obviously a timeless gospel religious tune. 
I love that Franklin merges it with You've Got a Friend, the 1971 tune from Carol King's wonderful album Tapestry. A lot of people may know it best by the James Taylor version. You know, I tend to prefer my gospel music with a degree of uncertainty about the specifics of whom I'm worshiping. A higher power, the force of nature, the power of love. And I think that Franklin, by bringing the pop together with one of the most famous religious songs of all time, kind of opens it up so that even if you're not a member of her church or any church, you can enjoy this timeless classic. Here it is on Sound Opinions, Aretha Franklin with Take My Hand, Precious Lord, slash You've Got a Friend, on Sound Opinions from her amazing Grace album. When you're down In trouble You need Some love and care Ain't nothing Ain't nothing My hand, precious Lord, you've got a friend from Aretha Franklin, a classic performance of a classic couple of songs, Jim, an indication of what she was doing at this amazing concert in a Baptist church, taking her time, able to extend songs, turn them into mini suites. And despite these great artists who had sung these tunes, Carol King, James Taylor, uh, Leontine Price, Mahalia Jackson, you know, Aretha sings it. Yeah. She, she claims any tune as her own. Yeah, it's over after that. The case may be made for this song as well. Another famous song that Aretha covered at the church, How I Got Over. 
Now, this song was written by Clara Ward, one of her personal heroes. It was originally recorded in 1951. Mahalia Jackson is another one of those singers that once she sang a song, she put her signature on it. She recorded it in 61. She also performed it at the historic March on Washington in 63 in front of a quarter million people. Mm. So this song was heavily identified not only with the gospel church, but with the civil rights movement as well. In fact, the song was originally written by Clara Ward when she and her sisters and her mother were pulled over in the South, driving outside of Atlanta, Georgia, in the early 50s, by a group of white men who were somewhat troubled by the fact that here were these African-American women driving around what they considered a fancy Cadillac, and they were going to give them some guff about that. Well, they extricated themselves from that racially charged situation, and Clara Ward wrote this song afterward, My Soul Looks Back in Wonder for How I Got Over. Thank you, God, for getting me out of this potentially dire situation. This kind of information was known to that African-American community, the people who attended that concert in Watts on that mm. day. And, and they recognized the significance of it. So for Aretha to perform that song anew, give it fresh life with the piano by James Cleveland, the syncopated percussive sounds of those hand claps by the choir really resonated with that audience that day. How I Got Over by Aretha Franklin on Sound Opinions. I Got Over by Aretha Franklin, wrapping up our classic album dissection of Amazing Grace. What are your thoughts on Aretha Franklin, Gospel, and Amazing Grace? Share them on the air at 888-859-1800. Coming up, Willis Earl Beale's unique take on folk and blues, and my Desert Island jukebox pick. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. PRX. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and you're hearing a little bit of Willis Earl Beale with a song called Take Me Away from his debut album, Acousmatic Sorcery. Willis Earl Beale, 28 years old, has been around for a while, kind of an oldster by comparison for most contemporary pop artists to be putting out an album at the age of 28. A checkered story here, to say the least. Grew up on the south side of Chicago, ill-fainted stint in the U.S. Army, series of dead-end jobs, ends up relocating to Albuquerque, New Mexico in 2007, briefly homeless while there, looking for a job, ends up buying a whole bunch of cheap recording equipment and starts to sing simply because he's so damn lonely. He's got nobody else to talk to. I'm going to start making music out of the blue. Really a totally untutored musician, no prior experience in bands or playing music of any kind, ends up recording more than 100 songs in his bedroom in New Mexico. And slowly but surely, this stuff starts trickling out. He starts making homemade posters saying, hey, if you call me, I'll sing you a song. (laughs) So an interesting way of self-marketing. This finally trickles out through the Internet, his music does, and he becomes somewhat of an independent, underground mini-sensation. He gets signed to XL Recordings, or a subsidiary of XL Recordings, the home of Adele, of Radiohead, of MIA, and now his debut album has been released, Acousmatic Sorcery. We're going to review it in a second, but let's play a track from it first. It's called Evening's Kiss from Willis Earl Beale on Sound Opinions. In remission of the mind, watch and listen to find the position behind this illusion of Willis Earl Beale with the song Evening's Kiss from his debut album Acousmatic Sorcery and a fine tune it is, Greg. You know, I loved that movement in the early 90s that got uh, doomed with the moniker of alternative hip-hop or alternative rap. It was psychedelic in its essence and you had crazy experimentation like De La Soul and Paul's Boutique by the Beastie Boys, PM Dawn. Those were all very lush records or complicated records. There was also an artist I love, I don't even know if you ever knew of him, 
the Divine Styler, a guy who made music basically with an acoustic guitar and some electronic experimentation. He was, he'd been a prodigy of Ice-T and made these crazy psychedelic records and then disappeared forever. I think Willis Earl Beale is the second coming because there really is a combination, a, a hip-hop sensibility, a wonderful folk music consciousness. There's a picture of Bob Dylan on the wall of the cover here where he draws his self-portrait. He's obsessed with Tom Waits, your hero. So these songs fall into two modes. There's the acoustic folk and there's the stomping blues with a hip-hop sensibility running through both. The stomping blues tunes are, are kind of Martian. He's aiming for Tom Waits. I think he's much closer to Captain Beefheart. And the folk songs are just as strange. Think Sid Barrett, think Nick Drake, think Robin Hitchcock in his more serious moments. There are flights of lyrical fancy, and then there are some very direct pleas. The key to that story you told about how he was discovered was putting the flyers up around town in Chicago, leaving CDRs on jukeboxes and in the bathrooms of different clubs. He hates this Facebook world of fake friendship. He really wants to meet people. He wants people to call him up so he can sing to them. That's what this album is about. Its only flaws are that a little bit of the lo-fi goes along way. I'm eager to hear him get into a real studio. And these are songs culled from, as you said, a catalog of a hundred. I wish that this had been a focused album recorded at one place in time so we could really tell where he is. But on the Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale, it's an enthusiastic buy it for me. Yeah, it's wonderful stuff, Jim. I think uh, you nailed it when you talked about this idea of an emotional connection that he's seeking. It's, there's an almost a desperation in these songs that you can hear, you know, reaching out for, for a human touch, for a human voice for some sort of connection in that wilderness that he was living in for those few years. The hip-hop influence, I think you're hearing that primarily in his choice of percussion, which is essentially kitchen pots and pans and pails and things like that, homemade instruments. It's very percussive, mainly because he really can't play anything. He's, he's really not trained to play guitar or keyboards or anything. He plays a little rudimentary guitar on this record, but it's primarily percussion and his voice. And I think what carries it for me, in addition to the inventiveness that he's creating this stuff out of thin air, is that voice. What a voice this kid has mm. got. You know, that raspy field holler stuff. I'm going past Waits and, and Beefheart to some 78 RPM record that Alan Lomax might have recorded <laughs> in the Deep South in the 30s, seriously. And the heartbreaking ballads that he's writing. We played that one song, Evening's Kiss. There's another song, Monotony, on this mm. record. Several others in that vein that are just beautiful, heartbreaking. They kind of remind me of the most intimate, emotional doo-wop records from the 50s. So the voice is extraordinary. Whether he's got another album in him, I don't know. But I agree with you that this one particular recording is definitely a buy it. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible on Sound Opinions, we like to rent a boat and take a trip to the desert island and pop a quarter in a desert island jukebox. And this week, it is Jim's turn. Greg, a couple of weeks ago during our South by Southwest wrap-up, I referenced a band from the early 80s called Les Calamities, the Calamities, from France. In comparison to Bleached, a fine Los Angeles pop group now that is doing that kind of effervescent garage rock, a girl group mix of Motown and garage rock, I figured 
this is a good opportunity to play the Calamities. I don't know if you know this band. Very few people do. It was the early 80s in France in Côte d'Or. There was not a thriving French underground rock scene. These women kind of paved the way. Three women fronted the group. Caroline Augier, Isabelle Petit, and Odile Repholt. The songs were irrepressible, unbelievably catchy, high energy. They had hit singles in France. They got a lot of attention from the British press, where they were lauded as better than Bananarama, the only other girl group they could be compared to. And by the time they got to America, via New Rose putting together a fine compilation of their work, you know, the fanzine press that I was part of said, oh, my God, these women are better than the Bangles. We love the Bangles, but this group was better. This happens to be the first record I ever professionally reviewed for a fanzine. Mm. I, I say professional. I wasn't getting paid, but it wasn't <laughs> my fanzine. I was writing for somebody else. I got to tell you, this is my harsh awakening into the world of rock criticism. I love this album. I probably gave it an A++++, right? And then the editor of this zine, who had moved from Chicago to, to my neck of the woods out in New Jersey, asked me for the album back. She said to fact-check and to take a, a picture of the cover, and then I subsequently found the same copy for sale at the used record store. I had to buy back the album I had just given a <laughs> rave review to, but I didn't mind because I loved The Calamities. You know, that one album that they put out in the U.S. was kind of it. They petered out after a while as the women went back to school and then began to have families. They took all that money they'd earned in France and bought houses and stuff. And they say today, you know, it's not very cool to admit, but we invested it wisely and we really did well there was one other album where it was just a duo but to me that first album is where the magic was like i said the melodies are irrepressible and the lyrics are phenomenal they had a wicked sense of humor the album as it was released in america was called uh, the bride abattoir i'm going to play a tune called nicholas and it, it would have fit on our under two minute masterpieces show because it's actually one minute and 34 seconds i believe nicholas th this woman is infatuated with him, and it turns out he only loves one thing in the universe, his guitar. <laughs> Here are the calamities on Sound Opinions with Nicholas. <laughs> Calamities with Nicholas, my desert island jukebox pick for the week. 
The Sound Opinions Desert Island Jukebox is supported by Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark bourbon, it is what it isn't. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to bring you a dose of Southern Soul with an in-studio visit from Alabama Shakes. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn with the able assistance of Annie Minoff and our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia. He takes us to church every week. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hey, guys, this is Andrew. I'm so grateful for your interview with The Kills. I've actually been living and working in Florida for the past four months, and as both Jim and Allison alluded to, you can get pretty starved for things to do around here. So a few weeks ago, I drove up to Tampa to catch The Kills play at the Ritz. And I had never heard of the band or their music. I was just hungry for a really good rock and roll show. And sure enough, that's exactly what I got. music is just incredible and they have a, a presence on stage it's like a relaxed domination of their stage i'm so glad that i took the risk to go up there and check them out i hope more people will take the risk to go check out the kills after hearing your interview thanks so much guys Hi there, this is Skylar calling from Chicago, Illinois. I listen to your show a lot, but I was really struck by what you just said about Madonna. I was kind of a kid when Madonna's big hits were coming out, and that's kind of my idea of her. And, you know, if I'm having a dance party, I'll pull from those albums. I'm not particularly interested in her new album, but I was really struck by the comment about how she has nothing to say anymore, how she's Lourdes's mother. You know, you guys review a lot of musicians, new and old, a lot of musicians of her age, and I really question whether you would ever call in someone's child or their parenting thing uh, if this was a male artist. I just think you need to be really careful about comments like that. It would never be a lens through which you would look at someone like David Bowie's music. That's all. Wake up, Hey guys, this is Miles calling from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I'm really excited that you reviewed Madonna's um, latest album. 
I personally was never a Madonna fan until this album um, because I feel that she was just kind of out of my generation being in my young 20s. But I have to say I'm absolutely living for MDNA. It is a true effort to stay relevant in the dance pop electronic dubstep wave that kind of is hitting pop music since Britney's Halted Against Me in 2011 kind of broke that wave. Madonna, I think with the producer she worked with on this album, she transcends expectations and still provides a really good mix of songs that play well in any club, any bar, any house party, really. Thanks. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.